Well, tonight we are going to be in Judges chapter 7, beginning in verse 19. We will uh, take, uh, take the passage over to uh, Judges chapter 8, verses 20, to verse 21. And uh, so this is essentially, uh, we're kind of still tracking along with Gideon. We'll have one more week. Uh, in our study of of Gideon uh, in the book of Judges. And so uh, this is essentially um, the high point of Gideon's uh, ministry as a judge of Israel. And uh, next week we'll essentially be looking at uh, the fall and decline uh, of Gideon. Uh, and so, um, but here is essentially the high point. Uh, it's great, the greatest and highest success. This is this is the section that the book of Hebrews is referring to in Hebrews eleven, uh, when it talks about the great uh, deed of faith that Gideon did. Uh, this is this is it. And so we are going to uh, read this and uh, and uh, and consider it tonight. So we'll be uh, reading from the English Standard Version, beginning Judges chapter seven, uh, verse nineteen. I'll bring the text up on the screen. I will bring the text up on the screen. If I say it out loud, it'll happen. So. Okay. The response time is really slow. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on here. There we go. No, no not working. All right. All right, well, I hope you got your Bibles open. So, all right. Um yeah, <laughs> yeah, we got pew Bibles, so that's uh, that's what we got them. That we got them for. Uh, there we go. There, all right, here we go. So, all right, here we go. All right, technology, hooray! So, all right, though this is why you want to have your Bible. <laughs> so, all right, hear the word of the Lord. And so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands uh, the the torches and in their right hands the the trumpets uh, to blow. And they cried and they cried out, uh, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood his place around the enemy and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah uh, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and, they, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the hands of Oreb and, and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. The, and uh, and the men, then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us out when, uh, when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to, him, he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? 
God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, uh, um, uh, Please give, uh, give, uh, give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of, of Succoth uh, said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? And so Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna uh, were in Karkor. Uh, with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, and there had fallen, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and, and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army left felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned to the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the, the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So the book of Judges is a book about several things, but one of the key themes of the book is God's deliverance of his people. Now when we think of God delivering his people, we might rightly think of Things like Egypt and the Ten Plagues and the Red Sea and God granting success uh, to Joshua and Jericho, miraculously causing the walls to fall down. Um, you know, God's deliverance in, in, this, in that sense, when we think about it and the examples of it that come, normally come to mind, uh, almost assume the presence of a miracle. But as we actually see in the case of Gideon, uh, this is not always the case. Uh, and so we need, and we need to think about this because we may get confused as to what God's deliverances may look like, especially how they might look like in our own lives or life as the church. 
And so we have here in this passage, as said earlier, uh, according to the book of Hebrews, a seismic event of faith, a, a, an incredible feat that was accomplished by faith in God. And, uh, and, and this is something that ought, what Gideon does here ought to encourage and inspire God's people to continue in the faith. That's the purpose of all those examples in the book of Hebrews 11 of why he gives all those examples. Because he, he begins chapter 12 in the book of Hebrews. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us continue the race with our eyes set on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Right? And so here's an example of Gideon that should encourage us, inspire us to continue to follow the Lord. And so tonight we're going to meditate on two things that, that we learn from Gideon's uh, deeds here. First, God's extraordinarily ordinary deliverance. And secondly, the handing out of judgment upon the enemies of God. And so first we see in chapter 7 verse 19 all the way through verse 3 of chapter 8, God's extraordinarily ordinary deliverance. And, and what we see here is that God, first of all, grants a, a absolutely shocking success. Um, you know, Gideon takes his uh, 300 men who are equipped with horns, torches, and pots, and it's not said, but presumably they had some swords, we assume, I guess. Um, now, bear in mind that later on it says that 120,000 of the enemy were dead by the end of the day, right, by the end of the pursuit. So this is, uh, so this, so you have 300 men that spark this massive victory. And uh, it's, and we're told that they, they, they go, they, they surround as best they can the enemy camp. And, uh, and uh, it's somewhere between 10 and midnight, the scholars debate what the middle of the, of the, of the, um, uh, of the watch means. Um, but the, but the guard shifts are changing. Uh, uh, they haven't settled in yet. Uh, much of the enemy uh, is sleeping in their tents. And then at the right moment, there is a blast of 300 horns, a thunderous crash of pots smashing and the burst of 300 torches mixed with loud war cries. Now, um, now it, there's, there's a visual trip going on here because uh, if you have an army, um, they're normally not going to have, they don't, they don't, uh, an army is going to have a few torches. They're going to have a few, uh, a, a few horns, but not every soldier is going to have them. And so, so the, the idea would be the more torches you see and the more horns you hear, then the larger the force. And so all of a sudden you're, you're, you're sleeping and all of a sudden this blast comes out and all of a sudden it seems like you're surrounded by some massive army that's doing a surprise attack at night and chaos ensues. And, uh, and, so, and, and, we can, and, uh, and we can safely say that the Lord intensified the confusion. He threw them into a panic. And, uh, and so such that, uh, you know, the, the enemy just starts swinging swords at whoever is nearby. They're so terrified. And, and so the army ends up fleeing in terror and, and Gideon pursues. Now, remember, we're in the, we're in the northern part of Israel here. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of go down and then go across the Jordan and go all the way over here. And then it's going to come back um, this way uh, as they pursue. But they're, they're up here in northern Israel. They're calling out some of the northern tribes to come, come, uh, come help pursue these guys as they're running. And... and uh, and, and so we see here, though, even right here, God's promises and provision and how they go hand in hand with wisdom. 
We see, as one scholar noted, the, uh, the perfect combination of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God restricted the number of men that Gideon had, and so Gideon, uh, he took his 300 men, and he didn't just do some like frontal assault. You know, let's just all go single file and run at the enemy, boys, you know. Uh, like, he didn't do that. What did he do? He got really creative. Got as creative as he could. And so that he could make his army look bigger than it was. And I want you just to note here how God provides for Gideon as he acts in faith. As he goes forward in faith, carrying out what God has specifically called him to do. Not what Gideon wants to do. Gideon didn't want to be there, right? Gideon wants to be somewhere else. But he's doing what God called him to do. And as he does, God provides. And, and now there are instances in, especially in the Old Testament when you look, where God does act prior to um, his servants doing anything. Uh, where he'll go and, you know, when the Assyrians were coming in to attack Israelite and the angel came and wiped out, like, a, you know, a, a, was it over 100,000 Assyrians? And then they go out and they look and they're like, it's just a bunch of dead bodies. You know, there's like, oh, well, we didn't have to do anything, you know. And so there are those types of instances. Um, but I, I would say more often than not, we see God providing normally as his people walk by faith in their calling. As Gideon carries out the fight against the Midianites, God provides. As, uh, as, you know, as Elijah went and, and proclaimed a very hard word against God's own people, God provided food for him, provided shelter and, uh, and, and supplies for him. As, um, uh, as David fought against Goliath, God provided right? He made the stone sink in and, and, and kill the, the giant. All right? And so... Um, as the apostles in the New Testament take the gospel out into the world, he provided, and he provides still. So the question is uh, not what miracle is God going to pave uh, the, you know, the road for me with, but what is our calling? What has God commanded us to do? And, to, you know, and, and not to wait until the path is clear to start doing it. We, all, we also need to focus on the fact that how normal and ordinary the, the means are that God uses here. You know, it, notice how Gideon's forces, they're 300 men. They start out small, but they don't stay small very long, right? Uh, once the initial confrontation ensues and, and the enemy army is put to flight, well, he starts calling all the other men into action. And so, you know, by the end, there's thousands of Israelites chasing these guys down because who doesn't love to clean up after the battle's already won, right? And so, um, and, so as the, and so as the pursuit continues in verses 24 to 25, Gideon calls on the Ephraimites um, because as, if you're northern tribes and you're going to go down this way, um, Ephraim's kind of over here, so you're going to get into Ephraim territory. And, so, and, they're, and they're right there. They're in the best position to go and to cut off the enemy at the pass, as we like to say, right? Go cut them off at the pass. Well, that's what they're going to do. They need to cut them off at the river so that way they can't escape. And so he calls on the Ephraimites to do, to, to do that. They do it, and they go and catch Oreb and Zeb, uh, whose names say it mean raven and wolf. And, uh, and these are princes, they're leaders, and they are summarily executed. Their hands are cut off, which is normal ancient practice, because that's how you would prove that you had killed the leaders, is you would cut their heads off and their hands. So 
Uh, and also, if you, it, and if you remember uh, in First Samuel, um, in First Samuel, we were talking about this the other day at, at, at the home at, at the house when the when they lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines, and the Philistines took it into the temple of Dagon, and and Dagon and 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 the and God kept like just messing up the the statue like more and more until finally the, the Dagon statue had fallen over and the head and hands had fallen off. God was conquering the gods of the Philistines, and they were like, we've got to get this ark out of here. He's really hard on our God. <laughs> He's so hard on our God, we've got to get him out of here. So, um, I just, it's, it's, any Israelite's just chuckling when he's reading that one. So, um, but, but I would just want you to note here how God doesn't do anything crazy. He doesn't do anything massively miraculous. He doesn't rain fire from the sky. He doesn't divide waters. He doesn't cause a flooding rain. Uh, like He caused the flooding rain with Barak and, and Jephthah. That's how I'm Barak and uh, Deborah uh, uh, earlier uh, over in Judges 4. But he doesn't do that. He simply makes it so Gideon's strategy works to the fullest extent. You know, strategy that probably shouldn't have worked. He makes it so it works. And we don't hear about swords in the hands of Gideon's men because God was going to provide all the swords they needed from the hands of their enemies. And so again, like this plan was crazy. This plan never should have worked. Um, it's like if you're ever watching a movie and the heroes come up with some plan and it's so convoluted and crazy, you're like, this should never work. And of course it works. Uh, but there's just like, this should never should work. That's how this plan is. It should never work. But it works. Because by the providence of God, he works things according to his will to bring about a great and undeniable victory for his people that would bring him glory and exclusively bring him glory and for us we should take great encouragement in the story of Gideon in the weakness of Gideon in the 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 small army of Gideon and the fearfulness of Gideon because the book of Hebrews wants us to consider Gideon's victory with his measly 300 ill-equipped men against this massive army such that we would say if God can do that with Gideon What might he do with us here at Bailey? Or as one author put it, we may reflect well that today God still works by his spirit with the most unpromising material to accomplish his purposes. And we can all stand around proudly and say, everyone, we are unpromising material. (laughs) That God, our potential is very limited. (laughs) But with God, he can do all that he wants and all that he desires. And he can do something incredible through us. And so you and I may be made then of such wrong stuff that God just might use us because he'll get all the glory. I mean, that's the mentality of the Apostle Paul, right? The purpose of my salvation is to show that no matter how wicked you are, you can be saved by Jesus. <laughs> it's like, it's just like, why? Because I'm the worst. <laughs> and God saved me. He can save you too. Right? And so, uh, and so there's, there's, there's a wonderful uh, truth about God's extraordinary use of the ordinary. And that he can work through us. We also see a bit of practical wisdom at work in Gideon. In, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now, this reminded me as I was reading this episode of his interaction with the Ephraimites when they start getting on and getting on to him. Um, so back when America was uh, in uh, the colonies or even right kind of in the early years of the Union, uh, um, the state of Virginia was the big boy on the block. 
All right, that was the big, you know, now we think of states like California, Texas, Florida, you know, say New York, you know, so we think of like these other states. But back then it was Virginia and everyone was annoyed with Virginia because they thought they were special. They thought they were the big boy. They wanted to be in charge and all the other states were mad at them <laughs> and annoyed with them because, and, and they thought, yeah, we are special. <laughs> we are, we should be special, you know, so, um, and, and, and that's what Ephraim is like. Ephraim is like Virginia at that time because Ephraim is the prima donna of the tribes. I mean, so much so that in the end, like later on, all the whole, when, when the kingdom splits um, in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom is not only is it called Israel, confusingly, it's also referred to as Ephraim. Just the, the tribe just subsumes all of it, <laughs> all the northern kingdom. Okay, so, but they're the prima donna of the tribes. They're always hollering about how they don't get enough respect and how everyone should be, you know, impressed with them and give them privileges and, and talk about how important they are. And so they come rolling in all hot and bothered because Gideon didn't bring them in from the beginning. And now Gideon could say, hey, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, who's the judge here? Okay, this guy, you know, right? Like he could argue his own right, his own status, his own privilege. He could thump his own chest and say, how dare you, and inflame the situation, because they were coming at him pretty hard. But instead, he displays the wisdom that Solomon would later write in Proverbs 15.1, that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, what good would it do for Gideon to return evil for evil here, because he's in hot pursuit of the enemy? So instead, he uses a metaphor about grapes, essentially saying, look, because when he says the gleaning of grapes, he's talking about usually that's the thing that you would let the poor people do after you took all the grapes up, after you took all the harvest up, you let the poor people come and glean whatever was left over. And so he's saying, what, he's saying the, the, the leftovers of the grape harvest from Ephraim are better than the full harvest of my own people. Uh, um, and uh, he said, so he says, look, I, yes, we started the battle, but you captured the princes. So you get the glory here, like you get the honor of actually capturing the rulers, because that was really the high mark uh, in that. And so, and in doing so, he pacifies the Ephraimites. And, uh, you know, it was funny because they calm down. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, we are special. Thank you. you know. And, it's, you know, and so uh, I, I was, you know, and, and I was thinking about, you know, when I was doing customer service uh, for, um, uh, um, you know, it was, you know, the first skill was for handling complaints is, is like, was always listening. Because uh, if the person that's coming in, they're mad, they're in a tizzy, right? They come in, but if they, but if they, they're ready to fight. <laughs> but if they come in and you, and they feel, and you know, you think about the last time you talked to somebody and you were upset, you know, with a customer service. If you actually feel like they're listening to you, uh, it takes at least 30% or half the anger out, out of you. Because you're like, oh, at least they're hearing me, you know, maybe they can solve my problem. I'm still kind of a little bothered. We still got to solve this issue, but I at least feel listened to. And, um, and, and, and like, and we are so busy today that people just don't expect to be listened to. They're kind of surprised if you actually listen to it. So you're saying you're, you know, this, this is what happened. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, let's see what we can do to solve it. You know, it's kind of like, oh, okay. Okay. You know, I, don't, I want to fight in tooth and claw here. All right. Great. Um, uh, and, and so it just, it just brings it down. And so Gideon is having victories here all over the place, 
right? He's having battle victories. He's having Israelite leadership victories. And again, this is a very ordinary victory. Nothing miraculous here. He listened to them. He gave them, threw them a little pride bone, get them calmed down and pointed out that they, they actually accomplished a, a lot and, they, and they, they got plenty of bragging rights. And so, and the point here is simply don't underestimate the power of God's providence in your life. You don't have to have a miracle to know that God is active in your life. I mean, ask yourself, uh, you know, what, uh, what has God called us to do as his people? And then trusting him to go forward and do it. And, and you will find that God's going to provide for you in unexpected ways. You know, so we actually saw this at Presbytery. I told you I was going to share this. So at, at Presbytery uh, this week, we saw this uh, and we started the worship service. And um, the pastor who was leading the worship, first of all, uh, Clay, you'll appreciate this. The pastor, uh, he forgot to tell us that we were singing a cappella. And so everyone started at different times, and it was a mess. We had to stop singing the first hymn because we were in all different places. And it, was a, it was a cacophony. You just could not make sense of anything. It was, so we stopped, he said, and then he said, okay, look, I, sorry, I don't have a piano player. We're just going to have to sing a cappella today. And so, okay. So, so we started singing this hymn out of the Trinity Hymnal and in unison, in each line in the him uh, concludes with the Lord will provide and around uh, the time we were concluding the second line uh, someone get up got up to the piano and started playing <laughs> and indeed the Lord will provide <laughs> and at the end the pastor said well this hymn has taken on a brand new meaning for me <laughs> as the Lord provided right in the midst as we're singing the Lord will provide and here we are with a piano player and so this is the extraordinarily ordinary providence of God at work, bringing deliverance and blessing to his people. Secondly, in, uh, in chapter 8, beginning verse 4 through 21, we, we see how God brings judgment upon his enemies, again, in ordinary ways, ordinary justice as we, that is brought about through human hands. But what I want us to first see in verses 4 through 9 is how pursuing the enemy uh, will, will uh, raise opposition and so Gideon is continuing his pursuit of the Midianites. He's focusing on the next level up, um, uh, the rulers, um, the kings, the rulers, uh, Zeba and Zalmunna. Uh, and at this point, his men are exhausted. And so he goes to two Israelite cities in the tribe of Gad. So uh, now, And now both of these cities, um, Sukkoth and uh, Peniel, uh, have, were named by Jacob in the book of Genesis. Um, uh, uh, and so Peniel means the face of God because that's where Jacob wrestled with the angel. And then Sukkoth, uh, is the, it means shelters because that's, uh, that's where uh, Jacob went to take shelter and set up his camp when he was coming back with his wives and he ran into Esau. And then, and that, and then he went and camped in the place where he stayed. He named Sukkoth, uh, and, and so, which means shelters. And these cities uh, refuse to support Gideon and offer him no shelter, somewhat ironically, um, or support. You know, the place that means shelters offers Gideon no shelter, <laughs> no support, no help, uh, even though they're fellow Israelites. Now, we can have some sympathy for these cities because if Gideon fails, well, then the Midianites are certainly going to take retribution against these towns for supplying their enemies, right? It's kind of a rock and hard place. Uh, but... To, even if that's true, to not supply 
your own countrymen who are fighting for you on your behalf to drive out the enemy and to and and even further to do do what they did with such scorn and taunting it, this is they're doing more than simply acting out of fear and self-preservation they're acting like the enemies of Israel and as we will see they're going to get the reward the enemies of Israel get But before we get to that, we need to understand that pursuing the enemy, even the enemy of sin in our lives, will raise opposition. If you are convicted of sin in your life, you seek to reform your behavior, to cultivate your love for God, uh, you will have those who will support you. But you may be surprised to find that there are those around you who will discourage you. Even those who call themselves by the name of Christ who will discourage you. I remember I was just... You know, shocked in in college. Was, you know, the guy and we were both Christians, and I was, and I was, man, I'm, you know, I was talking about, I was really struggling with, um, you know, I wanted to grow in holiness, and I was tired with some sins in his life, and he was like, oh, you don't need to worry about any of that. He's like, ah, no, you don't worry about that. And he was just discouraging me from trying to pursue holiness, and not in a legalistic fashion either. I wasn't like going to check all the boxes, but I was just dissatisfied with some habits and patterns of sin in my life, and he was just like, ah, no, you don't need to worry about that. Well, well, the problem was because he had patterns of habits of sin in his life he didn't want to deal with, right? Um, and, so, and so some will say, you don't need to worry about stuff like holiness. That's, that's legalistic. You just need just love, just love. Others will be very offended because they do the same things, and the fact that you want to change just passively indicts their own sinfulness. Now, I'm not authoring or authorizing you to do what Gideon does and to go thrash them with thorns, all right? That's not the, me, the, the moral of this story here, um, or to pull down their towers, you know. Uh, but, uh, but know that when you pursue holiness in your life, you will find surprising adversaries, uh, and that can even arise within the church, within Christian relationships. But this brings us to verses 10 through 17 and what we can call the reward of faithlessness. What follows here is what happens to the towns of Peniel and, and Sukkoth uh, are uh, what, what at least one scholar called military justice for treason. Uh, in, in due course, Gideon does uh, uh, finally capture the rulers of the Midianites, and he returns and says, Hey, you remember those guys that you said I couldn't catch? Well, I caught them. So here we go. So I followed through on that, and I'm here to follow through on the other thing. And so he gets a list of the elders and the, and the leaders, and he teaches them a lesson. It's a nice little, nice little euphemism there. <laughs> so it's a hard lesson in verse 16. And then he breaks down the tower of Peniel. Uh, and that would have been a tower for like a watchtower to, to see. It's a tower of protection for the city. And then he kills the men of the city. And uh, it's not a wild speculation to say he likely did the same thing at Sukkoth. So now it's hard to say for sure that this is true biblical justice and not Gideon going a little overboard. Um, uh, uh, But even so, if one turns against the people of God, what do they expect their reward to be in the end? The people of these towns were, were, you know, they weren't cowering in fear or lacking in supplies. They were heaping scorn upon the deliverer of God's people and refusing to support him. You then compare that Compare how the towns of Peniel and Sukkoth responded and compare that to Rahab in the city of Jericho and how at great personal risk saved the spies, the Israelite spies, and assisted them. And, 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 when, uh, and when they came into the city, 
Not only was she spared, but her entire family. And they were welcomed into the community. And not only that, we find Rahab's name in the, in the lineage of Christ. Now, and so you compare that, the faith of Rahab, the pagan prostitute, that she had more faith and, more, and, and was willing to risk more than Israelite towns themselves. And we should note that the judgment that will fall upon those who reject Christ, um, who cast off the demands that he makes on his people, is a terrible, terrible thing. But it is a great reality. And finally, we come to uh, con- uh, the, the last part of the passage, verse 18 and 21, which uh, just kind of called the complexities of human justice. The complexities of human justice. Um, because... You know, one scholar noted that after verse 3, after that incident with the, Gideon, with, with the, Ephraim, the, the Ephraimites, uh, um, all, all Gideon's humility and wisdom seem to kind of disappear. <laughs> he doesn't say, isn't Gideon meek and mild anymore. Let's get a son of Gideon kind of wrathful and angry Gideon. And, uh, and, and so we find that Gideon, if we find out here in this, in this part of the passage that he is... Uh, part of the reason he's searching out uh, for Ziba and Zalmona is, is he wants to satisfy his quest for personal vengeance. Because apparently, and we're not told this like when this happened, we're not, it's not in the text, but apparently some of his relatives got killed at Tabor. And, and, the, and, these, and, and he says, hey, what, what were those men that you killed at Tabor like? And they say, well, they, they, those men that we killed were like sons of a king. And it was a compliment. It was a, nice, it was a nice thing to say. And we're not exactly sure what the motivation is here of, of his, captor, his captives of why they would say that. Uh, some think that uh, they're trying to say nice things and hope, hope that Gideon will spare their life. Um, uh, or others are just saying, no, they just describe what happened. They look like noble, kingly type kids or men. And so, but whatever the word, so whatever they say essentially issues their death sentence, right? Because he was like, well, if you hadn't killed them, I would spare your life, but you did, so I'm going to kill you. All right. And so Gideon gives the honor, which technically was an honor. Now you might say, I don't want that honor, but uh, it was an honor to be called upon to execute the enemy rulers. Uh, and so he calls upon his son uh, to do it, and, um, uh, his, but his son is afraid to do it and won't do it. And, uh, and, and, and we can understand that. Uh, if, you've never, if you're an inexperienced warrior and you're called to behead someone... Uh, that get messy. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're not experienced, that could get a little messy if you're trying to execute somebody you've never done it before. <laughs> so, um, and so his son won't do it, and, and his captives, uh, uh, you know, kind of goad his manliness. <laughs> it was like, yeah, hey, you do it for you, do it yourself. Be a man. Kill us yourselves. And so he does. And he takes the crescent ornaments off their camels, which would have been valuable and, and, and signified royalty. But. At the end of this, I, I have mixed feelings at the end of this passage here because um, I do believe that here that the Lord has given a great victory to, through Gideon. That Gideon has completed a great act of faith. But it seems like we're also seeing some pride begin to get mixed in with Gideon's uh, drive and his actions and how he conducts himself. He's pursuing Israel's enemies and it, was, and it was standard procedure to capture the rulers of your enemies and execute them. 
But his killing of his fellow Israelites at at Sukkoth and and Peniel uh, and his personal vendetta casts a shade on his actions here. And I think they foreshadow the ungodly character that is actually going to come out uh, very soon. We should not be surprised to find a mixture of sin and truth when it comes to justice as it is dispensed by human beings. Even in the best cases, in the best justice systems, which I would argue that our, our, our justice system is one of the best justice systems in the entire world, in the history, in the history of the world, um, even for all its problems and flaws, even the best cases, there is going to be error mixed with truth. But for the moment, this imperfect justice is what brings about the safety and the rest that God's people need in the book of Judges. As we think about our own justice system, we do find that truth and error, honesty and corruption all mixed together. And while we ought to always seek to improve our justice systems uh, in whatever nation we find ourselves, in whatever society we live, we ought to be thankful for the good that they do and the evil that they restrain. Yet here is another aspect of the ordinary means that God uses to bless and protect his people. And so what we have here tonight is God's extraordinary use of ordinary means, of ordinary people and events and systems to accomplish good things for the sake of his people and his name. And so we're invited then also to evaluate our own lives in light of this. What has God called you and I to do as his people, as individual believers, as his church? And don't count out the ordinary ways of our lives, the ordinary ways that God works his providence out in our lives. Because you never know when God is going to use very ordinary people in very ordinary moments to do extraordinary things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you because you sent your son. And as Isaiah 53 reminds us, he was truly ordinary in his humanity there was nothing special about him to look at there was nothing that would just bring crowds and flocks and 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 people that would love him and that he brought about salvation not through um not merely through the the miracles that he performed while he did his earthly ministry but through his death on the cross And indeed, there was a miracle. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. But you you did so much even through the ordinary aspects of Christ and and through his life and his death. And thankfully, through the miraculous resurrection, you brought about our salvation. And Father, we pray that as we may look at ourselves and we may see very ordinary people, that we would not try to hide and hide away from the purpose and calling you have placed upon us because we are ordinary. But rather, Lord, may we walk forward in faith, carrying out the tasks that you've given us to do to to make disciples of all the nations, to live as ambassadors of Christ, to serve you as ministers of reconciliation, to love one another, to love, the, uh, to love the church, to love Christ, 
to walk in obedience to your commands, all these things you, you call upon us to do by the grace of your Spirit. And you give us the ordinary means of grace, prayer and the Word and, and, and the sacraments. Because you do extraordinary things through the ordinary. And so, Father, we pray that you would use us, you would work through us, that you would bring blessing and glory to yourself, that you would bring blessing and strength and help to your people. And we pray this in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus. Amen.